0: Hi, I'm Jeff Madoff and today on Curiosity Bites with Doug Barron, we're going to talk about what I do. And what I do is I'm the author of Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas, and I am a professor at Parsons School for Design where I interview lots of really interesting people that contributed to the book i am a playwright i have a play that's premiering in may called personality the lloyd price musical and i am the ceo of madoff productions not a coincidence same last name as mine and i do commercials documentaries and so on for people like ralph Warren, companies like victoria's secret harvard school of public health american academy of dramatic arts so we're going to talk about creativity and how editing is the real secret to doing great creative work about creativity collaboration and trust and how to work with people in a way that really enhances and make your work makes your work a lot better so i'm really looking forward to my conversation with Dove because as you regular listeners know he is an interesting guy and a lot of fun to talk to so please stay tuned and hope you enjoy the show
1: welcome back to part two of my interview with Jeffrey Madoff. Now, he is the author of Creative Careers, Making a Living from Your Ideas. He is the founder of Madoff Productions based in New York City. He has done some pretty amazing things, and before we were talking about uh, how a master has no secrets, and that was a really, just like, for me, that was like, so awesome, such a great piece. So let, let's go back a little bit in here because there's so many places you can go. You know, we talked about, you know, you, you have a background uh, schooling, which is uh, psychology and philosophy and wrestling. Yeah, that's not a weird combination. Uh, and wrestling <laughs> and then the fashion industry and then film production. And, you know, I, I don't know if you know this. Uh, I don't know if we had talked about this before, but my original career, my original career, back when I was 13, was in the hairdressing business. I was Real. in the hair, just so we were in the fashion world together um, uh, in the 70s and, and uh, early 80s. I was in that business and I had uh, hair salons on three continents and I was an international oh. judge for Schwarzkopf. Wow. You know, so, <laughs> you know, and it's something I was deeply ashamed of when I first moved into the, into the psychology and business world I was like, Oh, don't mention that. Oh, God. <laughs> right? And now I, you know, now I realize what an amazing gift it was to me at that time. So it's really interesting because it's where I started off about this idea of how we categorize artists. And, and I, in the training I did last week, I talked about how we have these This media concept of the artist who is this uh, drunken or drug infused individual who's down in the dumps and then has this moment of brilliance and creates this amazing thing. And then after they've created that, the next thing that happens is, you know, they then fall back into that slump before they finally come back and create something else again. And I've said in there, I talked about who is an artist that you wouldn't call an artist who is disguised as something else. And I said, I'll give you an example. And they went, okay. I said, Elon Musk. I've never seen any of his paintings. I don't know if he's ever done any art. But to me, he's an artist. When you look at that background that you came from, you know, in the psychology and the philosophy, and and you've ended up in the art world by virtue of film and, and production, Do you see art differently than you think most people see it? Well, I think it's maybe about defining
0: creativity differently.
1: Yeah, thank Uh, you.
0: And uh, I think that creativity needs a broader definition. Most people, the traditional definition is you are thinking about someone in the arts. Yep. I also posit that if you're an entrepreneur, you're creative because you start with an idea, whatever that is, and you eventually put that idea out there to the marketplace.
1: Yep. That's exactly Whether or not
0: you've got something mm-hmm. And on a certain level from idea to actualizing the idea to putting it out there, uh, whether you're starting a new business or whether you're starting a new book, Uh, that process of creation, I believe, is the same. Uh, You know, you have to, you're making something from nothing. And that's creativity. And so I think the the definition needs to be embrace more. You know, I I use an example in, in my book that if you're a dentist and you make a teeth whitener, that is faster, cheaper, and more effective than anything else out there. You created that, that's a creative
1: act. Now, you,
0: you may not wanna hang that on a wall any place, but that's not the point. The point is that the creativity in that act, I believe is the compelling need to bring about a change. And that could be in dentistry. I think the scientists who are working on the vaccine for COVID-19, That's a creative enterprise and we can learn a lot from science because with science, you're failing all the time. Most of what you do doesn't work until it finally does, Mm -hmm. but you don't get discouraged. You persevere and everything you have done before informs what you're going to do next. So when you talk about being the hairdresser and you didn't want to first talk about that, well, in fact, that shaped part of who you of are it and informed what you do so yeah i think it, creativity needs a much broader
1: definition because there's so
0: much more that can be included and then it depends on how you manifest it
1: yeah i mean creativity as you said at its basis is about creating whatever it is and, and there's another piece in there that i i talked about and i love your input on which is i think that part of what stops people from owning their creativity is this idea that it's something I do and I don't know that that exists I think all creativity is catalyzed by something else so it's collaborative and it's catalytic. it's catalyzed by someone else in you and as a collaboration and that collaboration may be going on inside of your own head or it may actually be a literal collaboration but it's a collaborative effort. And I think that part of what stops us, I was, as an, as a kid, my art was in galleries by the time I was 11. Wow. Right. Um, and I don't consider myself to be an artist in that form anymore, but I'm definitely, if I, I, I did a thing on Facebook a while ago and on LinkedIn and I said, if you created a business card that had on it, what you truly are, but it's not on your business card, what would it be? And mine said, artist, philosopher right those were right up front artist and philosopher were right up front because that's what i am i'm an artist first there's a there's an an incredible need for me to create my marketing team says to me you're a content machine you make our lives insane uh, because i have to create and she said you don't when when i first took her on she goes you don't need to do anything for about three years i go well i have bad news for you (laughs) it's not gonna happen I just have to do it. My, the guy who's ahead of my brain is like, "Dove, please, I need you to stop creating stuff. And I'm like, yeah, it's just not going to happen, mate. I can't do it. I think there's a compulsion that I actually don't believe is, is the artist's compulsion. I think it's a human compulsion to create. And I think that that is shamed in us. I think that that is repressed in us. And as somebody who is living in that world of creation... I want to know, what do you think about that? Maybe I'm a the sugar, or maybe a lot.
0: (laughs) Well, I'll join you on that journey, too. Uh, But I I think that there is no way that you can be successful as an artist without having a compulsion to do it. Uh, Sometimes that compulsion becomes an obsession but you have this obsession uh, to create, to do things. And that can take a toll on you too. It can take a toll on your family life. It can take a toll on certain relationships. A lot of people, when they're deep into it, sort of go off the grid, you know, Mm -hmm. and friends can get pissed off at you because you don't call them back. Uh, But you have to focus all your energy in getting something done. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's both a blessing because it's great when you're in that zone and it's also the curse because there's things that come along with it. Now there's a lot of bad things that can come along with it, but I think those happen independent of what your art is. I'm talking about things like addiction and sure. things that, you know, that a uh, pain of loneliness and all those kinds of things. But I think that that compelling need to do, you know, uh, I don't know. Is it maybe just like being a workaholic, except that you're not called a workaholic. If you're
1: doing your art all the time and you're just. So I think there's that. a vast difference psychologically, <clears throat> psychologically, the workaholic is driven to work because of the external validation. So it's extraneous, whereas the, um, the need of the artist to create is an internal need to, it's an internal drive. So the difference between the two is that oftentimes the workaholic is very deeply dissatisfied because they're not getting the rounds of applause and the recognition they need to validate that, that they are the martyr victim hero cycle. Whereas the artist just has to create and the It's not the, they may never be fully, solely satisfied within themselves, but they actually don't really, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It's, I just have to do this. And I think that that's the distinction between the two. And I, and I, and as I talk about meaning driven leadership, meaning driven leaders are deeply, deeply on purpose with what it is. And, you know, people say to me all the time, I don't know how you work so many hours. And my answer is I don't. And they go, yeah, you do. And I go, no, I don't. Because what you call work is work. What I do isn't work. What I do is joy. It's bliss. And I share it with the people I love and the people I love, I'm collaborating with and involved with. And, and this, you know, this is time for me to do this this doesn't pay me a ton of money. It doesn't it cost me money to do these, but I love this collaborative exchange with amazing human beings who bring new light and new insight into my life. And hopefully I can do the same to them. And hopefully between the two of us, there's an external cap collaboration that lights a fire or sends a little spark in somebody's mind and awakens something in them that they've never considered. So for me, it's, there's a great difference between those two things.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting because I guess the question I would ask for that artist who is compelled to create mm-hmm. is why, what compels you,
1: mm-hmm. you know?
0: Why do you feel you need to do what you do? And I think that what's really interesting is in in looking at that motivation. And, Absolutely, and I, and I think we're all looking for validation, you know, uh, and I think that that validation can be addictive. Yes. Uh, and I think that it's important, you know, I'm, I'm now old enough that I'm, I'm ready for success if it ever happens, (laughs) you know, uh, because I think I'm grounded enough emotionally because I see like with the models that I've worked with, you know, people who were, literally making millions of dollars a year who are not even 20 yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they're surrounded by people who are tending to them in both beneficial and negative ways. Uh, And, you know, they're not emotionally mature enough to handle the kind of exposure that they get. And uh, as the saying goes, youth is wasted on the young. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's interesting because I think it does take a lot to cope and contend with sometimes the fruits of your labor. Uh, And so I'm always interested in, you know, it's great when you can say, what I do is is bliss. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love when I'm in the zone writing, I love that when I'm in the zone in production, I love that, it's really great. And then I'm also aware of certain tolls that that takes. And, you know, and I think there's a real myth about life-work balance because I don't know anybody that does that, you know, and I hear that all the time. Well, how do you achieve your life-work balance? And, and I think it's really hard. So when I was a kid, I used to watch the Ed Sullivan Show. Mm-hmm. And this, this is the image that stuck in my mind, and I was probably nine And it's this juggler, he puts uh, plates on the stick and he goes like that that and he gets the plates going. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so he's got seven of those. And by the time he gets the fourth one going, the first one's wobbling, goes back and gets that. Then he gets a fifth one going and then the second one's wobbling. And he's in constant motion because there's always something wobbling. And I think, to me, that was a metaphor for life.
1: It's a great metaphor for life. You
0: know, you got to pay attention to when things fall out of balance. And if you don't, they can fall and break.
1: Yeah, in our leadership training, one of the things I talk about, the work-life balance nonsense. And that's exactly <laughs> how I phrase it. Because there is only a work-life blend. There is no there is no work-life balance. Um, and I said, once you understand that and accept that, then you recognize that you actually recognize and accept that there are things that are going to be out of balance while you focus on something else. And the idea is to not let it fall. Right. So it's like your plates, right? So, you know, if I say to my wife, okay, I'm in, I'm, I have to get my head down. I'm going to work on this, um, which is maybe a book, the next book. And she'll say, okay. And I know, like I'm not, I'm going to, cause I do, I call every night and every morning when I'm away, and say good morning and I say good night. But that's it. That's all you're gonna get from me. And that's what's gonna happen for the next, you know, I'm gonna be away for three weekends in a row, four day weekends, and I'm gonna get the bulk of the writing done. And she's like, okay, I know that my life is out of balance at that point, but I know that that's the best way for me to focus. But I also know when I'm working with a client or when I'm doing this, nothing else exists in the world. And that's mm-hmm. the key is that presence. Everybody's talking about being mindful and present. Well, that means you're out of balance because focus is out of balance with everything else. And that's the importance of it. That's the value of it, is that you get all my attention. If I'm balancing my health and my fitness and my marriage and my kids and my grandkids and everything else and trying to do this interview, I'm not present. Right. So it's it's a fascinating illusion, isn't it?
0: It is, it is. And that one of the terms that, that I use a lot is presence, mm-hmm. being present. And so I'll, I'll go into one of the things that really gets me an offshoot of that. I mean, there's a lot to unpack with, with what you said. Also, I mean, when you were talking earlier about, you know, the, the, the collaboration necessary for the great ideas, not isolation, there's a, a part in my book that I call The Myth of the Lone Genius. Yeah. And The Myth of the Lone Genius, the prototypical example, was Thomas Edison. Mm-hmm. That he somehow agonized over his inventions, would nap for 20 minutes and then invent a light bulb or something. Mm-hmm. Well, that wasn't true at all. Uh, so, you know, the the new Edison is Elon Musk, someone else that there's been a mythology that's built up around the person and neither of them or Steve Jobs or anybody could do anything that they do without lots of people around there supporting their efforts. Absolutely. That's not to take anything away from their vision, uh, but it is to, to demythologize the idea that somebody did it alone because they don't. Don't well, I think there's it. a
1: great example to the contrary that, that shows that, which is probably one of the greatest geniuses in modern history, did it alone and died miserable and poor. And that is the man Elon Musk named his company after, Nikola mm-hmm. Tesla. Mm-hmm. He, he was a member of society. He was a... Uh, Uh, you know, went out and did all the things and then he didn't. And he got obsessed inside of his work and never did anything and never involved anybody else. And he ended up in a battle with Thomas Edison. And and the guy was destroyed emotionally, financially, and without doubt made Thomas Edison look like a dummy. I mean, uh, Thomas Edison, I think was a lot more shrewd, but as a, uh, as an inventor, come on. And, you know, and so it's a really good point you're making there, Jeff, is that, If we don't recognize that these people do surround themselves with people who not only support them, but can carry that vision. And execute. And execute. Right. Because that's one of the other things, isn't it? I mean, it's one of the things that I know about high creatives. People who are, my personality type is high creative, high intellect, high stimulus. We are all people who fall into that category. We are the most, the most likely for depression. It's inevitable that that's where we're going to go if we don't take care of those things and because we, we'll do them in a negative way because we have to because we're high stimulus. And the other thing about those people is that we, we love relationship, but we have to have time alone. And we have to collaborate. We have to share. We can't help but do that. And so often those people... You know, there's this, again, another ideology. Oh, the, like you said, that lone wolf, that, you know, introvert. No, they've got to surround themselves with people who can carry the thing vision. Mm-hmm. And you are, you know, you're creating this play. Now, let's talk about the play for a minute because there's a lot to unpack here. There's your interviews, there's the book, there's the play. The play I find particularly interesting. I don't know if you know that recently... I interviewed, <clears throat> excuse me, five-time um, Grammy Award winning uh, bassist, Victor Wooten, you know, mm. uh, amazing guy. He's actually on, on this show on Curiosity Bites, amazing guy. And we talked all about music and music history. And and again, I have this massive <laughs> fascination with music. And, and, and I, you know, even though I was born in Northern England, I grew up on... I grew up on Soul. I grew up on Motown. I grew up on Stax. I grew up on on all those labels, you know. And and he was playing with Curtis Mayfield on tour when he was six. Wow. <clears throat>
0: yeah, no kidding. Just yeah,
1: insane, right? That's fantastic. And but a name that never ever came up came up was Lloyd Price. It never came up, and. <laughs> Honestly, Victor talked about people who had influenced his music and people who had been a massive influence to music. That name never came up. Tell us about. Lloyd Price, your connection to him and what you're doing. So let me set some context up, uh, first of all, which
0: is up until the 1950s, the record business was an adult business. So all the major labels like DECA and RCA uh, capital, they did classical music and operas. I remember my grandmother's uh, record player was, you know, a big piece of furniture. Yep. And that there would be like five records, 78 RPM. They'd be in different jacket in an album. That's why they were called record albums. Right. because there were five of them that might have that particular symphony in an album. right? You know, uh, and there was only so much time you could record on a 78 RPM. Of course. Yeah. Uh, so there were independent jazz and blues labels. Uh, and if they sold 3,500 to 5,000 records, that was a lot and they were happy, especially because a lot of the owners were stiffing the musicians that... Uh, you know, did the recordings and charged all the music recording and studio time and other musicians against the uh, artist. And so they often came away with nothing. And the other person also, the label owner, oftentimes took the rights and listed themselves as owner. And so that was a pretty corrupt business. Uh,
1: Even Motown was that.
0: Yes. And so what happened was there was a, a record label. Called Specialty and Specialty was a became the largest gospel label. Fats Domino, who I'm sure you've heard of, absolutely. Fats Domino recorded a song called They Call Me the Fat Man.
1: Yep, great song. Sold,
0: sold 28, 29,000
1: copies. <clears throat> Unheard of. Unheard of. So, Are in you, the context of where normal, quote, pop records, popular, because pop means popular, records selling right. 3,500, he sold how many? 28,000, 29,000. I mean, that 000. must have been like, that makes him Michael Jackson of the time. It was huge. So yeah. what
0: happened was Art Roop, the guy that started Specialty, whose real name was Arthur Rubenstein, who moved from Philadelphia to California to become an actor, that didn't work out but he would go to the gospel church because he just loved the raw emotion that happened during gospel music. Right. So he started this label, kind of decoded what it was, and then as a result of Fats' record doing so well, <clears throat> he wanted to record a young artist. One of the guys that uh, sort of scouted for talent for him, a man by the name of Dave Bartholomew, who was a musician in his own right, a black man who at age 15, left home and was playing jazz on riverboats around new orleans and he's got his own story he went to a, a little fish shack which is the back porch of lloyd's house lloyd was working on a song on a broken piano and dave went in there to buy a fish sandwich and he heard this kid playing who was at the time 17 and he said i want to record that And Lloyd said, "Okay." he didn't even know what he meant. No. And then he forgot about it. And three months later, he gets a call. I want you to come to Cosimo Matassa studio in New Orleans. Lloyd lived in Kenner, where the airport is for New Orleans. We're going to record you and that song that you were doing. And that song was called Laudy Miss Claudie.
1: Laudy, Laudy, Laudy Miss
0: Claudie. You got it. That's right. That's right. So he recorded that and uh finishes doing that first take everybody was blown away in the recording session and, and by the way fats domino played piano on that and lloyd says can i go now and he was so intimidated by the whole situation and dave said to him lloyd we need a b-side and what's said, what's that he said well records got two sides a and b you just recorded the a side We need to record the other side. You got another song? So he said, can can Fats play some of that boogie-woogie music? And he said, yeah. He says, okay, I'm ready. He goes, all right, I'm going to count you in on three. And uh, it starts one, two, three. The music starts with Fats. Lloyd jumps in and he sings a song called Mailman Blues. Song ends. Everybody's blown away. Lloyd goes, both of these songs, by the way, in one take. And he says, can I go now? And where'd you get that song? And Dave says, out of his ass, because I never heard that song sung before. And, and Art looks at Lloyd and says, where'd that come from? He said, I just made it up. So you just made that up. Yes, sir.
1: Right there.
0: Right the there. On the spot. Okay. Lloyd gets paid fifty bucks. He leaves. Some weeks later, he's you know with his brother in the truck. They dig septic. Uh, they bury septic tanks. Uh, that's what his father did: is dig trenches for septic tanks. And on the radio, they hear Lottie miss Claudie. And Lloyd's brother says, "Is that you?" And Lloyd goes, "I don't know." He says, what do you mean you don't know? He says, I don't know. I never heard myself on the radio before. I have to wait till the end. And at the end, Okie Dokie Smith, who was the disc jockey, said, this boy's going to take off like a rocket. Lloyd Price from Kenna, Louisiana. Watch this boy go. And the song sold over a million copies.
1: A million?
0: Over a million. And that was a seismic change in the music industry it broke on the wall that was called race records. Cause at that time, you can only buy records by black artists in black record stores that had never happened before, but nobody's prejudice against green. So Lottie Miss Claudie took off since then it's been covered by the Beatles, by Elvis, by little mm-hmm. Richard, little Richard, who, by the way, Lloyd got him his first recording contract. And, uh, you know, one of, one of the last songs that Amy Winehouse covered was stagger Lee which is another one of Lloyd's songs. So Lloyd's also in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but he was not only, not only broke down the wall called Race Records, he was the first music, music, musician of any color to start his own label, because he oh. didn't like music math. Then he was the first black to open a nightclub below Harlem in Midtown Manhattan. So he was an entrepreneur, he never allowed himself to be a victim, Uh, and his story is incredible. And the first thing that the Lloyd character says when you see him on stage is my mama wasn't a whore, my daddy didn't leave. I didn't learn how to sing in church and I never did drugs. I want to get that out of the way up front. And you're then told a story about his extraordinary life. That is not any of the cliches we've seen in so many of these other stories. So sorry for running off like that. No, moment. no, I'm that, so was, that was excited about the play. I'm oh, so... that's
1: that's fantastic. So God, there's so much to unpack in there. Um so the first question is did he get any more money than the fifty bucks? Yes.
0: <laughs> <What he laughs> because did. you and
1: I both know that in those days, you know, you got a check and it was like, okay, you're out. Now we're getting all the money and you're naked.
0: So what happened with Lloyd, Art Roop was a, was a a good man. And there came a time when, uh, you know, Lloyd became a huge star, arguably the first teenage idol. And he attracted as many white kids as he did black, which never had happened before. So, uh, he wanted to buy back his contract and art said, I'll sell you your contract. And, uh, Lloyd said to him, what do you mean sell it to me? He said, I paid for it, I'll sell it to you. Now Lloyd didn't like music math. He didn't like the fact that he wrote the song, performed the song, and all the recording costs, the musician costs, stamping costs, all that were taken out of his end. Mm-hmm. So even though he got a higher percentage than other young musicians at that time, he felt like he was being cheated, which he was, but, uh, but that was the nature of the business yeah and so it was interesting because lloyd's mentor a gangster by the name of harold logan said to lloyd uh he didn't screw you he invested in you and made you a celebrity now it's time for you to make the money mm. and our Roop said to lloyd i did something much more valuable than have you sign a contract I made you into a commodity so other people will pay to see you. So it's a very interesting, very, very interesting story. Uh, And that's what, that's what the musical is about.
1: Uh, And that piece right there, that invested in you. That's right. You know, I mean, I'm trying to think about the, um, his his name has got on my head and you might remember his name. He put together Boys to Men, uh, not Boys to Men, um, what were they called? Uh, those boys groups, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like uh, he put together those and, and he was kind of like the same thing. He just would find a bunch of guys and he would put them together. Uh, um, and Backstreet Boys, right? Sorry? Backstreet Back Yeah, thank you. He put those sort of bands together and took most of their money, right? And we're talking in the early, early 90s. I mean, it's, right. not, it's not a long, long time ago. He took most of their money. And eventually they got their own money out and, and, but you know, it's like Simon Cowell does it with, with the American idol people and people, you know, you know, he's an asshole. Well, is he, I mean, I I can see why you say that I get it, but you know, uh, there's a lot of these people who were singing, you know, in the kitchen and that was it. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly they're not so, you know, one of my mentors years ago said this to me, and we'll take a break after this, but one of my mentors said to me years ago, he said, he taught me a fantastic lesson. He said, if I teach you how to make a million dollars in two years, what percentage will you give me? He said, I teach you a system where you can make a million dollars in two years, what percentage will you give me? And we were in a, we were in a group. And, and the group said, you know, 5%, 10%, 20%. The highest it ever got was 50%, right? And he goes, You're all idiots and you'll remain broke the rest of your life. Hmm. And he said, You should be willing to give me a hundred percent. And they said, Why? He said, Because I'm teaching you a system by which you can repeat it for the rest of your life. That's what it takes. That's thinking in an investment mindset as opposed to a taking mindset. And he goes, you've all got taking mindset, and if you have that, you'll remain broken. That for me was one of the greatest lessons in my life because I really got right there, oh, that's what I'm doing with this person, or oh, that's what this person has done with me. So when, when people pay for me to mentor them, I'm like, this is pittance, I promise you. When I've paid people, insane amounts of money to guide and mentor me. I know it was worth every penny. It's that same lesson that, that, that gangster taught to Lloyd. That's fabulous lesson. We're going to take another break. We're going to come back with our third part of the show. I'm here with my guest, Jeffrey Madoff now again if you want to join in this conversation you can go over to Facebook there's a group inside Facebook called curiosity bites there you can chat about this show you can have conversations about this and and we also make sure that all the uh, conversations about the other shows are in there and if this is your first time listening in so please go to wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to the show please share it with your friends. Uh, These are amazing conversations. They are quite delicious. And we'll be back for round three in just a moment.